Hello, this is Tim, the lead pastor of Mosaic Portland, and welcome to the Mosaic Portland podcast. We exist to follow Jesus in authentic community for the world. And right now we're gathering Sundays online uh, to worship together and to open up scripture together. And then after that, we have virtual house gatherings that meet all over our city. And the great thing about these is that you can actually join in wherever you're listening from. We think these right now are the best way to be known, to connect with others, uh, and to be on mission together. They're also where we pray together on Sundays in smaller communities, where we take communion together and debrief what the talk was about and engage scripture more. If you want to find out more information of how to be a part of one in this season, you can find out more info on our website, mosaicportland.org. Now let's go to scripture together as we listen to this podcast. Hi, my name's Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. Welcome again. We're in a series called Anchored with Jesus in the Wind and the Waves. And this is a phrase that's borrowed from one of Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And it's a phrase that that says, we will no longer be infants tossed to and fro by every wind and wave. And so Paul's kind of mixing his metaphors here. It's two different pictures that he's using. The one is a picture of an infant, and the other is a a picture that's elicited of a a vessel perhaps on an ocean that is being driven back and forth by the waves. And um, and so it's this picture of maturity, this idea of maturity, and this idea of being anchored. And uh, this theme of maturity is kind of woven through the passage, and it's a little bit in the background. Um, we, we kind of read it and, and perhaps don't even notice it. And so I want to read this text again. I want, to, I want us to read this through this lens of, of maturity and, um, and really pay attention to these subtle references to maturity as we read it. And so it's Ephesians 4, verse 11 to 16. And it says, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And so Paul, he's really onto something here in in helping us see that if we want to understand what it means to be anchored, we really need to understand maturity. Maturity in a physical sense is fairly intuitive. Uh, in our office right now, one of our pastors, Connor Durr, he recently, just a few months ago, uh, him and his wife had a baby, a beautiful baby named Simon. And it is so obvious um, the difference between Connor, who is an adult, who is eloquent, he can speak well, he's six foot something, almost seven foot, uh, facial hair. He is 
mature. He is an adult. Whereas Simon is a helpless infant. He, he is perhaps the infant that, that Paul is referencing here, who is incapable of thinking for himself, speaking, feeding himself, dressing himself, all these sorts of things. In a spiritual sense, it's perhaps not as obvious um, what maturity looks like. And so um, this is a helpful passage for us to kind of dump, jump into in that sense. Paul, um, the word that he uses for maturity is a Greek word, teleos, and it can also be translated as perfection. And, and so it's really, it's really saying there is a point at which something reaches its fullness of purpose, of intention. And that fullness of purpose and intention is, um, it, it is this ideal of perfection. Many of us, um, many of us, aim for perfection in, in physical maturity. Um, and for many people who are parents, or if you've known or been close to people who have young kids, we see, we see this ideal idealism um, come through in the way people parent. Uh, you get all of these charts and, and um, developmental milestones of what's normal and when the child should be doing this or that. And everybody wants their child to be ahead on those milestones. Everybody uh, so badly desires that their child is going to check all of those boxes and, and do well. And that's, that's a good thing. It's really, I, th I think, driven out of a sense of love very often. Um, but it's, that kind of comparison can, can be very dangerous. And we do that with our children, but we do that with ourselves as well. When we compare ourselves to others in terms of maturity, it either leads to pride where we say, oh, I'm better than that person or my child is better than that, that person's child, better than that person's child, better than the chart in this area and that area. My child must be a genius um, or I must be so smart. Or I must be so much better or I'm actually a good person because I didn't, I'm not a serial killer. And we compare ourselves conveniently to people who are worse than us and it leads to pride. Comparison can also lead to a sense of hopelessness or, or defeat or, or despair when, when, we, when we see our, our neighbor or our friend or the person that we've grown up with achieving things or doing things that are way better than, than we can. And, and the, we, we become hopeless and we, we, we feel worthless. And so comparison is, is a really dangerous thing when it comes to maturity. How we understand degrees of maturity uh, is something that people have thought about for years and years. The philosopher Philo, um, Greek philosopher, he, he had his degrees of maturity that he, he used to rate his students according to. Um, more recently, a very popular uh, degrees of maturity that's been used has been The Seven Habits of Effective People by Stephen Covey. Um, and, and he uses this grid of dependence and independence and then interdependence. And, and some of those grids are really helpful, but I think a, a grid that meshes really well with this text is, is a grid that a Danish philosopher from the 19th century named Soren Kierkegaard um, devised or, or, or kind of saw as he, he read through scripture. And, and I, I'd like to use that one um, 
Also because it just sounds really intelligent compared to some of the others that I've looked at. Um, but, but I really do think it meshes super well with this text. And there are three degrees of maturity that he looks at. And I'm going to go through those degrees of maturity and look at how um, ultimate maturity actually sets us free from this problem of comparison. The first degree of maturity that he, he points at is aesthetic maturity. And aesthetic maturity is, uh, is really um, people who are bent on gratifying their desires. The word aesthetic means beautiful. And so it's kind of whatever, whatever you see, whatever's fleeting, whatever the trend is, whatever's nice, whatever's cool, th that thing is the thing that I'm going to give myself to and that I'm going to seek pleasure in and seek fulfillment in. Kind of elicits this picture of Eve in the Garden of Eve, the Garden of Eden, who saw the fruit and she 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 saw it says she saw that it was good, it was good for eating, and she took of it and she ate it. And so um, the person who is an aesthetic aesthetically mature is driven by those desires and has no anchor, is tossed to and fro by, by every wind and every wave because whatever they see, whatever, whatever grabs their attention, they're after that thing. It's a very hollow and base existence in a lot of way. Um, the British writer, um, Mad Haig, uh, he, he wrote a book about his experience as a young man living a, a debaucherous lifestyle in his in his young in his early 20s and it leading him to this point of utter despair and um, and depression and and he, he says this in his book he speaks of he says the idea that we have hammered into us by the hundred thousand tv ads we have seen that everything can be fixed by consuming things. And so a person at this level of maturity is bent on consumption. What I consume to fulfill my pleasure is going to be my fix. But it, but it reaches an end, it, it reaches a point where it's hollow and it's empty. And it leads, um, if a person will allow, to the next level of maturity, which is ethical maturity. And so somebody who's in this um, phase of ethical maturity might say, man, I recognize that life is not just all about gratifying my own desires. There has to be right and wrong, and, 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 and there got to be certain standards that dictate my behavior. And so ethics demands that certain things are right and certain things are wrong, and we need to be able to cut and divide between those things, we need to be able to discern what is right and what is wrong. And an ethically mature person seeks to do that and then live according to the right way and will make sacrifices, uh, 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 personal inclination in favor of corporate obligation. You would think that this is the height of maturity. I mean, surely if as a society, as people, as individuals, if we could just live according to what was right and, and, and not do the wrong things, man, life would be so good. There'd be no conflict, there'd be, there'd be no hurt, there'd be no pain. The trouble with this is that 
the reality is that there, there is no perfect law. And if you follow this, this train of thinking through to its full conclusion, it leads to a dystopian reality because somebody has to decide what the law is going to be. And then that person or those people and that people group need to enforce that law and often to the detriment of other, other people. And we see that if we look back on, on history, we can see the effects of that um, up, up to this point where at any given time, um, people in power and governments who have sought to do a good job, often out of good intentions, have done a lot of damage. And this is, this is even, I think, what, what drives a lot of our political landscape today. Um, we have one side calling for, for justice and we have the, the other side calling for law and order. And, and really both of those things are terms that are, um, high key terms in this ideal of ethical maturity. And, and they're almost synonymous with one, one another. And, and, and so people are calling for the same thing and they're saying, let's do the right thing. But what is the right thing? And, and people can't agree on that. People just, the complexities of life, of history, of equality and equity are, are too complex for us to solve through legislation. There has to be a higher ideal. There has to be something greater than that. People who anchor themselves to ethics, um, the ethics can become such a rigid anchor that it eventually destroys the boat. There's this architectural um, idea that, um, an engineering idea that a, a foundation of a building needs to be strong enough to carry the weight of the building, but not so rigid that if an earthquake were to strike, that the force of the earthquake just gets transferred straight into the building and the building collapses. And in, in a lot of ways, that's, that's ethics. If we make ethics supreme, it becomes so rigid to us that it destroys us. It leads to violence and leads to destruction. And so Soren Kierkegaard says, surely there must be something higher than these two ideals. Surely there must be something that that allows us to factor in both beauty and the best that beauty has to offer us and ethics that the, the a, a reasonable role that ethics and right and wrong plays in our lives but neither of those things can be fulfilled within ourselves and so he says it has to come from outside of us it has to come from something beyond us and this is where he points to to a divine hand in, in the working of things. And he says, something or someone needs to step in and help us and show us the way. And so this is where in this text, Paul sets the standard, he sets the measure for us. And he says, if you're going to compare, don't look at those around you. Don't, don't look to beauty and don't look to the law. He said, look to Jesus. And he says, measure yourself according to the fullness of Christ. And he says to the church, this is your measure. This is your measure. It's Jesus. And if, and if you measure yourself according to Jesus and according to Christ and his ways and according to the way of love, you won't be disappointed. You'll never be led to pride because you compare yourself to Jesus and you know you can never live up to the standard. And so it's a humbling thing. But it also never leads you to despair. It never leads you to hopelessness. 
Why? Because the very reality of the gospel, the very reality of the full narrative of scripture is that there is a beauty that, that we cannot, uh, we cannot um, corral in our, in, out of ourselves. And there's a law that, is, that standard is just too high for us to meet. And so the, the story of the Old Testament is really that story of the failure of God's people to live according to those high ideals. And the story of the gospel is really the story of Jesus stepping in and saying, my perfection has become your perfection. My righteousness has become your righteousness. And so there's hope. There is a hope for us that's, that outside of ourselves, we can still attain perfection. We, we can live in a way that invites us to reconcile the best of the beauty that God has created and, and that exists within Jesus in whom and through whom all things were created. And the law that Jesus fully fulfilled and, and lived the perfect life and attained this righteousness that can become ours. And we're set free of the demands of the law. We're set free from that. It has beautiful implications on us in community. Paul points out here, and really what he's doing is he's speaking to the church in Ephesus as a community. And he's not just saying, hey, this is for you as individuals. He's saying this is for you as a body, as a collection of people who are members of one body. This maturity can only be attained within community. Recently, um, in our virtual home gathering, when Tim, Tim mentioned maturity in his sermon, one of the young men in our virtual home gathering, who is not a totally immature Christian, said, man, this idea of maturity really kind of grabbed me. And we went on to have a conversation in our virtual home gathering where uh, we've got a cross-section of people of different ages and different levels of maturity. And some of those who are more mature in years, but really I would say mature in, in their faith and in their trust in Jesus, started to share some things that they've learned over the years, things of maturity. And really, a lot of those things boil down to this, this idea that, that they, they never articulated it in these terms, but it boiled down to the idea that, that whether aesthetic or whether ethical, those, de those degrees of maturity demand that uh, you hold yourself and you hold others to a particular degree of either, as either beauty or attractiveness or, um, or right or wrong to be worthy of community, to be worthy of being in those around you. And, and Paul he points out that this sets a new standard for us. The standard that he points to is the standard of love. And he says, from Jesus, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love. He says it builds itself up in love. It doesn't build itself up in, in an unattainable standard of beauty or an unattainable standard of right or wrong. And so, Church community is, is, is this weird anomaly where we come together 
not because we've we've attained a certain standard in some in some random or arbitrary sense. We come together and we exist as a com community simply because we've realized that our only hope, our best hope, to to be made right and to and to grow is to give ourselves to Jesus and to grow in his likeness. It's an amazing thing and it has amazing implications on how we, we treat one another, how we love one another, how we forgive one another, how, we, how we, we build one another up. All of the one another's that Paul speaks of and that are spoken of in the New Testament are fulfilled in community. There is no expression of maturity outside of an expression of community. And that's why Paul pairs these ideas and he says maturity goes hand in hand with unity in the faith. It allows us to let go of secondary things and to hold on to that which is primary, that which is our only hope. It's a spiritual maturity that only can exist in Jesus. And so you might be looking at these degrees of maturity, and they're not three neat categories where you're going to fall in one or the other, but it's perhaps a gradient, and, and in some areas of your life, you, you, you may be in, in different places, or maybe you struggle with different things in different ways and different times. But it allows you to have grace for yourself and allows you to come to, before God honestly with those things. It allows you to have grace for others. But you might be saying, man, I'm here, I, I, I kind of land in this place or in that place on this thing. Wherever you land, I'm sure you're not perfect. And you might be saying, well, how do I grow? What is the next step for me? And I want to say that given where this is speak, what, this is, what Paul is speaking about in this passage, given, his, what, um, given the marriage between maturity and community, I think the best thing that we can point ourselves to you, to, toward is to push into community. And so my question to you is not just where do you fall on this continuum, but what are you doing to push into community? We're living in a time where life in community looks really different to what it did six months ago. As a church, we're, we're looking at ways and we're making efforts, or as I want to say as a church leadership, we're looking at ways to allow people to find this expression of community, whether through virtual home gatherings, whether through abide on Sunday night, whether through youth experiences, um, whether through serving or be the bridge groups or Bible studies. These are all ways in which we can push into community despite the present circumstances. I want to say that if, if you're out there and you, you feel cut off from community and you're not sure what the next step is for you, the next, the next step or way forward, reach out to us. As a pastoral team, we would love to hear from you. Um, we've, we've made as an, an effort uh, as, as best as we can to reach out to people and connect with people. But we know that even within our limitations and, and I ask for, for your grace toward us as, as a leadership team in, in areas where that may have fallen short. But we, we want to hear from you. And every pastor's email address is, is, is on the website. 
reach out to somebody, express that, and we'd love to connect with you and see you be reconnected into community. Let me pray. Lord God, we thank you for the way that you liberate us, Lord God. Uh, we no longer need to be slaves to um, our own ideas or demands of maturity. But Lord, you have set us free to live in your righteousness and your maturity. And so Lord, we give ourselves to you. We surrender ourselves to you. And Lord, I pray for the strength and the courage that it requires to press into community and to walk alongside others in faithful Christian obedience. We love you, Lord. Amen.